that you made it out this morning, this beautiful day today, and uh, you weren't washed away by the storm last night. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 23. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 23 this morning. We read, starting in verse 14, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. The title of my message this morning is Faith for Today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in your word, knowing, Lord, that it's your plan. Your purpose for us being here is that we would hear from you today. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word and the power that you give it to change our lives. Help us be, to be attentive to it today as we listen. Lord, we pray for our children downstairs who are receiving the word as they're taught, even at a young age, that they would come to know you as Lord and as Savior. We pray your blessing upon our time. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and as their Savior, Lord, that they would make that commitment to you today. Lord, we commit our time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One writer came up with an illustration, a story about how cats are like teenagers. And he gives this comparison. He goes, neither teenagers nor cats turn their heads when you call them by name. No matter what you do for them, it's not enough. Indeed, all humane efforts are barely adequate to compensate for the privilege of waiting on them hand and foot. Cat teenager. You rarely see a cat walking outside of the house with an adult human being, and it can be safely said that no teenager in his or her right mind wants to be seen in public with his or her parents. Even if you tell jokes as well as Jimmy Fallon, neither your cat nor your teen will ever crack a smile. No cat nor teenager shares your taste in music. Cats and teenagers can lie on the living room sofa for hours on end without moving, barely breathing. Cats have nine lives. Teenagers carry on as if they did. Cats and teenagers yawn in exactly the same manner, communicating that ultimate human ecstasy is a sense of complete and utter boredom. Two more. No cat nor any teenager has ever improved anyone's furniture. And finally, cats that are free to roam outside sometimes have been known to return in the middle of the night to deposit a dead animal in your bedroom. Teenagers are not above that sort of behavior. 
Writer goes on, he says, Thus, if you must raise teenagers, the best source of advice are not other parents, but veterinarians. It's also a good idea to keep a guidebook on cats at hand at all times. And remember, above all else, above all else, put out the food and do not make any set of moves in their direction. When they make up their minds, they will finally come to you for some affection and comfort, and it will be a triumphant moment for all concerns. Maybe uh, when your kids were young, some of you moms attended, you know, mops. Remember mops? Mothers of preschoolers. I suggest today that really someone needs to start a group called MOTS, Mothers of Teenagers. Because that's really where the difficulties begin. The simple truth is that parents in today's world, it's tough. Uh, you know, it's, it's more challenging than ever before. The unique demands, stresses, and expectations that we face today are at times overwhelming. And they can uh, distract mothers and fathers from staying the course where the basic biblical fundamentals of family life are concerned. Added to the struggles and pressures that kids are facing today from all sorts of ungodly and unbiblical sources, it should cause all of us to fall on our knees in prayer for our children. Well, in our text today, we have a family that has quite a problem with their son. Verse 15 says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Mark's gospel says uh, that he has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. Some of you parents with teenagers are going, and that's not normal? Okay. (laughs) No, it's not, as we will see. Now, if you're taking notes, I've divided my study into three, three points. Number one, the chaos. Number three, the cause. Number two, the cause. And number three, the cure. But before we look at the chaos, let's recap what's been going on here, what's been happening. A couple of weeks ago in our studies, we saw that Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John there, there on the mountain. And, and it was an awesome experience in which Peter blurted out, Lord, it's good that we are here. And we read that. He said that because he didn't know what else to say. And then he says, well, let me build three tabernacles, one for you, Moses, one for you, Elijah, and one for you, Jesus. Well, what do you think? And then, you know, the Lord, Father, Father interrupts and says, hey, this is my beloved son, hear him. But think about that. What if Jesus would have said, you know, Pete, that's a pretty good idea. Start building, get that tabernacle done. We'll just stay right here. We'll, we won't come down this mountain. Or what if Jesus would have said, no, Pete, you know, I don't think so. See ya. And Jesus just went up into glory right then and there. That'd be awful. It'd be terrible. We'd have a mess. Salvation would not have come to this earth. But Jesus would never do that. Jesus had one focus and one purpose and that alone. And that was to go to the cross and redeem mankind from their sin. See, Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration so that he can climb another mountain, that of Calvary. He came down from glory to die for our sins so that we can experience the forgiveness of our sins, the freedom from guilt, and promise of partaking in His glory in heaven so to be with Him forever. Now, tabernacles in our, our churches are an okay place to hang out. That's a place where God has provided for us as a church to, to be strengthened in His Word, to have fellowship with other believers, to experience the power of God in our lives, to, to join in corporate worship. But it doesn't even come close to the glory that we're going to experience when we get into heaven. You know, I think of having Ken and Monica here. Their worship is just beautiful. But man, when we get into heaven, I mean, it's going to be absolutely amazing. See, mountaintop experiences, they're wonderful experiences. 
those times in our lives where, where God seems to approach us in a more tangible way than ever before. Refreshing times when we sense the presence of God as God speaks to our hearts in a very distinct and a very clear manner. Maybe it's a, a retreat like the ladies had a couple of weeks ago. The Lord spoke to your heart and you were really encouraged. Or maybe just a time where you just got away to be with the Lord. Spent some time with the Lord and the Lord spoke to your heart. And, and the problem is, you've got to come back down that mountain. You have to face real life. And oftentimes, that's where the trials come in. Here we know that Peter, James, and John, they're coming down the mountain from this mountaintop experience and what's waiting for them is hurting people, people with great needs. Listen, often mountaintop experiences are to prepare us for living in the valleys. It's been said God never allows his people to build their tabernacle in the place of glory while the world is still in flames. But it's not just hurting people that were waiting for them when they got down from the mountain, but there was more. There was a demon-possessed boy. Now usually... At the bottom of most mountains lies that valley, and, and in those valleys, the enemies are there seeking to ambush us. Because our enemy, the devil, he knows what it's like, and so he goes around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour, and he waits for that perfect time to attack. And often he does that when we think we're the strongest. Oh, I went to this retreat. Yeah, Lord, we're doing great. And all of a sudden, you get this attack from the enemy. That's why Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. See, the disciples were about to learn a lesson they, they would not soon forget. In a world full of chaos, we all need Jesus. And that brings us to our first point, the chaos. What is all the chaos about? Look at verse 14 and 15 and 16. And when they had come down to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he's an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Now we know from the other gospel accounts of the same story that within this multitude there was some arguing going on between the nine disciples that were left behind and, and, and some scribes. The same disciples that in the beginning of chapter 10 were, were going out and preaching good news and delivering uh, you know, people from, from demonic possession and, and healing people. They experienced Jesus feeding 5,000 and, and then the 4,000. Jesus was moving and working in their lives, using them in the lives of others. They were walking in faith. And yet here is this poor man who brings his son to these disciples, but their weak faith prevented them from giving much help at all. How sad that is. Yet how very much like us that is. You know, moments after a sweet time of maybe worshiping the Lord and God working in our hearts, we can so drift away so quickly onto something else or someone else. I mean, think about times that God's really blessed you and you've been in the service and you've heard the word and you've had this, this wonderful time and, and God has spoken to your heart. Then you walk out and you get into your car and, and say something that's off the wall or say something that's, that's ungodly. You know, we can praise the Lord in one breath and then start gossiping about someone in the next. Or you can get in your car and then someone cuts you off and, and you get angry. What happened to Mr. Spiritual? Weren't you the guy about 10 minutes ago had your hands lifted in the air? What, what's going on? What's our problem? Well, we'll look at it more in a moment, but Jesus tells us it's our, our little faith. It's unbelief. Now, faith is like a muscle. You have to use it in order to build it up. Some guys, they'll spend hours in that gym just pumping that iron to get these massive arms and they don't do anything with it. You know, they just wear tight clothes and, and uh, uh, what's that over there? You know, and they got this muscle over there. It's like, you know, 
work, do something, you know, move, move rocks or something. I don't know. Same thing with, with, with our faith. You know, we need to use our faith. What good is having it if we don't use it? See, our, our world desperately needs Jesus. Our country desperately needs Jesus. And we need to be the ones that exercise our faith on behalf of others and claim the unlimited power of God to do what we can to help those under the power and the influence of the devil. So, verse 14, there's some chaos going on. There's a crowd. Everyone's talking. That brings us to point number two, the cause, the reason for it. Again, let's look at verse 15 and 16. A man comes to Jesus, kneeling down at him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's an epileptic, suffers severely, often falls into the fire and into the water. Verse 16, so I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Verse 18, we know the boy was demon-possessed. And we see the cause. You know, the, the, the man brought the boys to the disciples, but they couldn't help him. They, they couldn't heal him or deliver him. They, they couldn't cure him. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, we read that before Jesus showed up with, with you know, Peter, James, and John, that it was the leaders, the scribes, arguing with the nine disciples left over behind why they couldn't deliver the demon out of this boy. Mark 9.14 says, And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. So that they're arguing back and forth. No, you need to do this for the boy. Well, that didn't work. Well, you need to do that. Well, we tried that. Well, this is how you really need to do it. And they're arguing back and forth what we should do or what we shouldn't do. I think our leaders today are doing the same thing. They dispute and argue and disagree over the same problems. How do we deal with the problems that are facing our youth today, the teenagers today? You know, it's been said raising teenagers is like nailing jello to a wall. I mean... But think about the problems that they're facing today. Often teens are subjected to violent video games, internet porn, cyber bullies, online predators, school shootings, teen gangs. I mean, it makes growing up in the 60s seem like a piece of cake. You know, the image of these teenagers that we have today often seem to be that of a a tech-crazed generation run amok, either committing acts of unfathomable brutality, shooting one another, or else being the victim by malicious adults via the same technology uh, that the teens have so widely embraced. And all the while, our leaders dispute and argue and disagree over how do we deal with their problems, how to deal with this drug problem among the teens. You know, the drug of choice today is is crystal meth. In fact, in our area, the Ozarks, it's known as the world's home-cooked meth capital. I mean, how's that for a title? I mean, I read an article from National Magazine that said concerning meth in the Ozarks, a remote cabin or trailer home is a perfect place to cook up a chemical stink of meth. And some of these shacks have produced generations of meth addicts. The people here are just as smart as anywhere else, but they're laid back, speak slow, and don't trust the government, says Tim Carpenter, an Ozarks drug task force cop. But they're smart. Chris Yates, a former meth cook, gives his explanation as to why meth is so prevalent here. This is the Bible belt, he says. I really believe Satan works his hardest in the places where God is the strongest. All meth addicts tell of encountering hallucinatory tree demons in the woods. Interesting. Experts say that crystal meth is one of the most addictive street drugs and one of the hardest to treat. Addiction counselors say the relapse rate of 92% is worse than that of cocaine. And, in fact, a recent survey shows that one in 33 teens have tried meth starting as young as 12 years old. And the leaders today, they dispute 
and argue and disagree over what we should do. But meth isn't the only problem. Opioids, I mean, opioids, both prescription and illicit, are the main driver of drug overdose death in the U.S. today, according to the Center of Disease Control and Prevention. More than 33,000 people died in the United States in 2015 from opioid overdoses, the latest year for which numbers were available. Greene County had 97 overdose deaths in 2015, and of those, 61 were opioid-related. Now, opioids include heroin, but also the common painkillers such as morphine and hydrocodone affect the part of the brain that controls the breathing, and overdose can lead to respiratory arrest and, and failure. And the leaders today, they argue and dis- disagree and dispute over what to do. But opioids are not the only problem. When we see that there are 360,000 unmarried teenagers giving birth each year, and that over 500,000 have abortions, when they see that 3 million teenagers will contact a sexually transmitted disease each year, our, our leaders are still disputing and discussing and debating and scratch their heads in bewilderment. They have no real answer. And if that wasn't enough, the amount of social media and media itself pushing the homosexual agenda as an alternative lifestyle under our kids, causing many of our children to become confused and searching for some sort of identity instead of finding their identity in Christ and then following God's principles found in His Word. And all along, our leaders dispute and discuss and debate and scratch their heads in bewilderment but have no real answers. Why? Because they don't know where to look for the answers. More importantly, they don't know who to look to for the answers. They fail to look to Jesus. They fail to see that it's a spiritual problem. Think about this poor man. We're told here that this was the man's only son and that he's demon-possessed. This man was devastated by what was happening to his son. Suffering severely, falling into the fire, often into the water. Luke tells us that he convulsed him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. Mark says the demon caused him to foam at the mouth and gnashes his teeth. This poor boy really became like an animal. It had to be devastating for this father to watch this superhuman entity destroy his son. Max Lucado writes about this. A cruel spirit lies in wait for him like a bully waiting to pounce on the kid coming home from school. It sneaks up on the boy, jumps him from behind, and mashes his face into the dirt, all the while delighting in the tyranny. Like a lion, just seeking to to, to single out the youngest, most vulnerable one and ruthlessly running him down, attacking him. Imagine being in this father's shoes. Most, most dads were teaching their sons a trade. You know, he's just trying to keep his son alive. He couldn't leave his son alone for, for a moment. He, you know, he didn't know when the next attack was going to come. His father remained on call on earth for 24 hours a day. This guy's in utter turmoil and great despair because he was helpless. There, there was a power at work in the life of his son that he couldn't deal with. A power that he knew nothing about. So think of the desperation on this man's face and his voice when he cries out, Lord, have mercy on my son. To this father, the boy must have seemed obsessed with destroying himself. Man, once again, we see the parallel of our culture today. Every year, thousands of teenagers die, not from cancer or from illness, but by their own hands. Teen suicide is the third leading cause of death among teenagers today. Why are so many kids obsessed with trying to destroy their lives? The same reason this boy in the story was there's a very strong demonic presence in our youth culture today. Now, I'm not suggesting that all these troubled teenagers today are are demon-possessed. 
But there is a demonic influence today at work in the lives of many young people. Maybe it's not possession, though it's definitely true in some cases. If it's not possession, it certainly is oppression. It's influence. There's a spiritual battle going on, and the devil and his demons are real, and they're powerful, and they're, they're very influential. I mean, consider what the Bible says about Satan. They say he's called an angel of light, meaning that he has the ability to come on you know, very cool. Comes on the scene like he's your best friend, promising the world to using all the things of the world to appeal to the flesh. Oh, doesn't this look good? Oh, man, just try it once. It'll make you feel so good. You'll fit in. You'll have friends. Come on, everybody's doing it. Listen, the Bible also says he's a liar and a thief and a robber whose desire is only to kill, rob, and destroy. See, that's the thing that our leaders fail to take into account. That's the thing that secular psychologists just don't understand. They don't understand they're dealing with a mindset and a force that's origin begins in hell. Now, granted, most of the church has gone way overboard in this area. Demons and everything. I'm not talking about that, the demon in every bush. But I do think it's important that we wake up to the battle and realize that the devil has a big influence in our society today, either directly or indirectly. The entertainment field, we see it all over. Certain video games, the demonic influences behind the scenes in the movies that are out there, either directly or indirectly, it's there. It's in our world. And because of that influence, there are many parents, even Christian parents, at this time who are just as miserable and devastated about their children as this man was with his. Because the son in whom they, their lives are bound up and at one time turns away from God and, and he's pursuing after his flesh. Or the daughter that was once their pride and joy of the family becomes self-willed or worldly-minded or maybe addicted on some drug and their hearts are broken and despairing because the devil has robbed them of their most precious treasure. And I believe that this father in this text represents many parents who would love to see their children set free from the power of Satan. Whether the devil holds them through immorality or alcohol or peer pressure or drugs, the point is the devil has them in their grasps. And parents have tried everything they, they know to free them and, and nothing has worked. They've tried therapy and interventions and counselors and even ministers. But this brings us to our third and final point, the cure. What's the cure? It's not what, it's who. Bring them to Jesus. That's what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, bring him to me. Folks, we need to be bringing our kids to Jesus. Yet so many parents today say, well, I just want my kids to make their own decisions about God and about religion. I just want them to be happy. You know, I want your kids to be in heaven. Yeah, but, but I want to be the cool parent on the block. Well, be the cool parent before God who's, who's watching you. You know, they're, they're, the kids that complain about church and they say things, well, I don't want to go to church, it's so boring. And the parent might say, well, you know, I don't think they should have to go if they think it's boring. That's such a cop-out. And if you're in that place where you're saying the same thing, then you need to get engaged with Jesus Christ as well. But there's a story I read about an elderly lady that was amazed at how nice a young man was that, that lived next door. Every day he would help her gather things from her car or help her out in her yard. One day the older lady finally asked the young man, Son, how did you become such a fine young man? The young man replied, Well, when I was a boy, I had a drug problem. The old lady was shocked. I, I, I can't believe that. The young man replied, It's true. My parents drug me to church on Sunday morning, drug me to church on Sunday night, drug me to church on Wednesday night. But that needs to be our priority, our job, our role as parents. We need to be engaged in our children's life, involved in what they're doing. Don't leave these important decisions in their lives in, the, in, the hand, in their hands. Don't disengage. 
I mean, you don't do that at dinner time. Why would we do that concerning their eternal salvation? You don't say, well, whatever you want to eat for dinner, you know, whatever you know, is good for you, that, that's great. I mean, they'd have Andy's frozen custard and Krispy Kremes every night. I know I would. But if you let them do that, then they'll never grow. They're never going to be strong. They're never going to be healthy. So why would you do that with spiritual things? Well, if you don't want to go to church, I don't think you should have to. If you think it's boring, believe whatever you want to believe, whatever feels good. Now, would you do that if you're teaching them to drive? Uh, you know, you teach them how to drive, you don't kind of go into, well, honey, now, we believe that green means go and, and red means stop, but, but, but we don't want to impose our beliefs on you. Whatever you want to do, you know, we, we, why would you do that with Christ? Why would we do that with spiritual things? No, you need to know that as you stand up and say, listen, I, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to believe that Jesus has the answer for you. And God's going to work in your life. And when you do that, and when you say, we are going to church as a family, this is important to us, know this. Every time you attempt that, it'll be as if all hell shows up at your house. The devil is not going to sit back and go, hey, isn't that great? I'm so glad you're doing that. No, Satan knows full well that you're on to something. When Jesus says, bring the kid to me, the enemy knew that Jesus was going to touch him and heal him and restore him powerfully like, like nothing else on the planet can so know this. Know when you make that commitment, expect an attack. Expect as a result for you standing up for righteousness and believing this and modeling this. Know this. There will be hardships. There will be those hecklers. There will be harassment. Maybe even from your kids' friends. There might even be hatred from your kids. And, and you say, well, why should I put myself through that? I'll tell you why. Because it's the only healing that is available. In fact, this dad says to the Lord in verse 16, so I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. They're probably trying on their own strength and their own power. But here's the real problem. Look at verse 17. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. That word faithless there is literally the word for unbelievers. Ken Hughes, author, writes this. Uh, These are fitting words for the church today, which is so well-equipped, rich, and instructed, and yet so often powerless, we cannot and dare not duck the master's diagnosis. Verse 18, And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. I love that. There's no fanfare, no hoopla. Jesus didn't have to get himself all worked up, and I say demon, I say demon, and work. He didn't have to do any of that. He just commanded, and the demons were obligated to respond. It had no choice. In Luke's gospel, it says, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. I love that. The father comes, here's my son. Jesus says, I've healed him, gives him back. And Jesus left his father so he can come to this earth and do this work of giving this son back to his father. That's the work of Jesus. Restoring families, restoring relationships that were destroyed by Satan. Jesus gives back that which Satan robs. So what's the cure for people who are lost, people who are getting beat up and ripped off by this world and by Satan? Be like this man and bring them to Jesus. Bring your kids. If you've got teenagers, grandkids, bring them to Wednesday night youth group. See, I think we often forget this because we're a church that's in God's Word, but God's Word teaches, works through the teaching of His Word. When his word is shared, it pierces even the hardest of hearts. 
Man, you may have that teenager going, I'm not going to listen to the word you have to say, but that God fires that word right at their hearts and it touches their lives. So the best thing you can do is get those kids where the, where the word of God is being preached because it's a word that's alive and powerful and sharper than the two of sword. It's a word that, that brings us to Jesus. That's why this boy was healed because he was brought to Jesus. Now, while we can't always bring our loved ones to Jesus physically, we can start by at least bringing them to church. You know, even if they object, they, they need to be, we all need to be in that place of receiving God's word, allowing God's spirit to work in our lives personally as well. And if we can't bring them to church to meet Jesus, we certainly can bring them to Jesus through prayer. I mean, let me ask you, do you regularly pray for your children or your grandchildren? I know we correct them, we discipline them, we nag them, but what about praying for them? Listen, what is so great is that they may be able to run from our presence, but they can't run from our prayers. Look at verse 19 through 21. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Notice the reason why this boy wasn't delivered to the disciples. They asked, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said, Because of your unbelief. You know, maybe they really did try to set this kid free. Maybe they tried once. I think they probably tried more than once. And they probably began looking at each other and saying, well, you know, this shouldn't be taking this long. Never taken this long before. This should have happened by now. The last time we did something like this, it didn't happen this way. It's not working. I don't think it's going to work. This, this isn't working. The problem is they stopped believing. Listen, you can't be called an unbeliever. I mean, you can only be called an unbeliever when you quit believing. The disciples had believed. But Jesus had left. He went on top of the mountain. They didn't know if he was coming back down or not. And, and, and they didn't know where he went. And, and now they're going, hey, we, we don't know. This isn't working. We weren't invited on the mountain. And, and, but hey, you know, they stopped believing though. They gave up. They quit. And that's why Jesus responded the way he did in verse 17. O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Listen, Jesus has power over Satan. The question is, do we have enough faith? Do we believe? Because right after Jesus talks about not having enough faith, he says, look at verse 20 again. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, obviously, Jesus is speaking figuratively here. He never moved a mountain literally during his earthly ministry, nor did the disciples. The phrase being able to move mountains was a, a figure of speech represented the ability to overcome great obstacles, huge problems. Jesus is talking about mountain-sized problems and difficulties such as the one they were facing now with his demon-possessed boy. You know, we all have these, these mountains that, that come into our lives, these problems, and they, they look huge. And, and Jesus is saying that you need to have faith to get through these things. Notice the contrast here. Faith is the size of a mustard seed. A mustard seed is, is very, very small compared to a problem the size of a mountain. I think so often we think our faith has to be equal to the size of the problem. I've got this huge problem here, so I've got to have a huge amount of faith. But it's a small problem, so I just need a little bit of faith. Listen, it's not our faith that moves mountains. It's the hand of God. And all we need is enough faith to put it in the hand of God. God is the one willing to work on our behalf that the amount of faith is never much. Just a seed-sized faith and God will move mountains. 
Because it's not the, the size of your faith. Again, it's the exercise of your faith. And the disciples stopped exercising their faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please them. And they stopped working out their faith. And you know what happens when you start working out? You know, you get you're flabby. Oh, I'll work out tomorrow. And oh, okay, maybe the next day. Next day. And then before long, you can't do things like you used to do. And that's what happens when you stop exercising your faith. Listen, things may be bad right now for you, but with faith, nothing is impossible. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't stop believing. And don't stop trusting. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples how to not let this happen again. Verse 21, in response to why the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, he says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Listen, bring your loved ones to the Lord in prayer. Pray and fast over them. Get your family and your friends to pray for them. Fill out a prayer request card. Get their names in our prayer chain here at the church. Now, again, once you get people praying for them and you're praying for them, this goes back to our first point. Be ready for some chaos. Don't, don't be surprised if once you do, you start facing aggressive resistance from the devil. I mean, in Mark's gospel, listen to what happened when the father brought his son to Jesus. Mark 9.20. Immediately, the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. Can you imagine? I mean, he's bringing it to Jesus. He's doing what is right. And, and, and all of a sudden, he starts foaming at the mouth and on the ground. And dad might maybe going, oh, no, don't do this right now. Not in front of Jesus. But it's a typical reaction we find all throughout Scripture. So long as that non-believer remains where Satan wants them, all seems at peace. But that moment that non-believer takes a step towards Jesus, literally all hell breaks loose. So don't be shocked when that happens. In fact, be ready for it. Then pray, pray and fast. Don't make a move without Jesus. Bring them first to Jesus in prayer. Intercede on their behalf. It's been said the power of prayer and intercession is mighty because it's brought before a mighty Savior. Spurgeon put it this way, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Charles, or Samuel Chadwick, rather, late 1800s, early 1900s Methodist preacher, he said this, The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying he fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Abraham Lincoln said this about his own mother. All that I am or ever hope to be, I owe to my mother. I remember many things about my mother, but most of all, her prayers. They've always followed me. They've clung to me all my life. I've always liked the, the example of a man in the Bible that was devoted to praying for his children. His story is found in the book that bears his name, the book of Job. You don't need to turn there. But I'll put it up on the screen. But at verses 1 through 5 of Job, verses 1 and 2 says this, There's a man in the land of Uz that, who, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil, and seven sons and three daughters were born to him. So he had a big family. He's got ten kids. Look what else he has. Verses 3 Four. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east, and his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So they had this big family, they had great gatherings, a time of fellowship, and this guy has got it all. Verse 5. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. 
Again, if you're keeping track, seven sons, three daughters. And what's he doing? He's rising early in the morning as their dad and offering a burnt offering, a sacrifice. Ten of them in his backyard for each one of his children. Because Job says, for it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. What a dad. Perseverance, dedication. I love that. Now nothing bad has happened in Job's life yet. We know what's going to, about to happen, but, but he hasn't a clue as to what's about to happen. And yet by this passage of Scripture that we just looked at, I believe that Job is being prepared for what's about to happen. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go home and light you know, ten bonfires in your backyard, but I am suggesting that you do exactly what Job does and, and what is meant by those altar of sacrifices. He's sacrificing prayer to, to his children. He's interceding on behalf of his children to the Lord. Listen, can we sacrifice an hour of sleep in the morning so we can rise up early and pray for our children? Back in Matthew 17, as we close, these nine disciples had neglected their spiritual disciplines. They lost their power. They didn't think to pray. Jesus was teaching them that faith, which brings power, is a faith that prays. Faith, you know, prayer is that, that vital link between the transforming power on the mountaintop and the desperate needs in the valley. Heard the story about an eight-year-old that didn't exactly dislike going to church, but it was the excruciating long prayer at the end that the pastor prayed that seemed especially tiresome to him. So naturally, this eight-year-old was a little apprehensive when his father asked the visiting pastor to say the blessing at dinner. Surprisingly, the prayer was brief and to the point. Pleased, the child looked up and said, you don't pray so long when you're hungry, do you? Listen, prayerlessness leads to powerlessness. Well, this is really interesting to me because early in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus sent out the twelve, gave them power over the demons, but now they can't do anything. What's up with that? Here's a lesson. We can't live off of past victories. When Jesus declared, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Jesus was giving them just that gentle rebuke for their unbelief, for the lack of being prepared. Apparently they stopped praying, they stopped fasting, and their faith was weakened. Now, Jesus does tell them that this type of demon can only come out through prayer and fasting. Now, they might have responded, well, how are we to know? Like, we don't know what kind of demon it is. Well, the answer is you don't. So praying and fasting needs to be a regular part of our lives. Our children, folks, our grandchildren are up against so much evil today in our world that we most definitely need to make praying and fasting a part of our daily life. It has to be. Finally, verse 22, 23. While they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of man, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Why did Jesus speak of his crucifixion and his death right after he cast out this demon? I believe the answer is found in Colossians chapter 2, where we read what Jesus did for all of us. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says this, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Where was Satan and the demonic henchmen defeated? He was defeated at the cross. You know, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.26 that, that unbelievers are in the snare of the devil, having been taken captive, by him to do his will. 
But it's at the cross that we see people released from Satan's power, from Satan's grasp. Nothing short of the blood of Jesus can cause Satan to lose his grip. We need to understand that. To have a friend or loved one who's lost, who's being deceived and ripped off by the world, bring them to Jesus through prayer. To have a son or a daughter or a grandson or a granddaughter that has turned their back on God, a prodigal, bring them to Jesus through prayer. Don't make the mistake and say, well, you know, I prayed last week and nothing happened. <laughs> Keep praying for them. And if you're here this morning and Satan has a foothold in your life, Maybe he's got you in bondage over certain sin, deceiving into thinking that, that the life you're living is really where it's at. You need to come to Jesus today. Come to the one who came down from the Mount of Transfiguration so we can climb up Mount Calvary and die in your place. He took the punishment that was meant for you so that you could be totally set free, free from sin, free from guilt, free from the power of Satan, free from the fear of death, free to walk a newness of life, living in a relation with God and having the assurance of eternal life. So if you don't know Christ this morning, I encourage you, come to him today. As soon as service is over, the elders will be up front. We'd love to pray with you and give you a Bible and let you know what it means to follow Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. And Father, we do lift up our children, our grandchildren. Lord, our loved ones, maybe nieces and nephews that are that are caught up in, the, in this world and in their flesh or in, in drugs or in, in uh, their identities. Lord, we lift up our kids to you. We pray, Father, for them, for their salvation. We bring them to you in prayer. Lord, that you would bring in their path godly friends that love you, adults that they respect, that they would uh, desire a deeper relationship with you. Lord, we pray for their... their uh, relationships, Lord, that they would find godly friends to hang out with. Lord, we pray for all of us, Lord, that we would be men and women of your word, men and women of prayer. Lord, the days we're living in are evil, Lord, but we recognize that you said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Father, we know that your return is near, so help us to live in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.